0: Chapter 4 of Weapons of Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Weapons of Mystery by Joseph Hocking. Chapter 4 Voltaire's Story of the East. When lunch time came, I, to my delight, obtained a seat next to Miss Forrest and soon I became oblivious to all else but her. I was sure, too, that she liked me. Her every word and action disclaimed the idea of her being a coquette, while her honest preference for my society was apparent. As we left the table, I turned towards Voltaire, and I found that he was looking at us. If ever hate and cruelty were expressed in any human face, they were expressed in his. Evidently, he regarded me as his rival— and thus his natural enemy. A little later in the afternoon he was again talking with Kaffar, and instinctively I felt that I was the subject of his conversation. But I did not trouble, for was not Gertrude Forrest near me? And did we not have delightful conversation together? It seemed as if we had known each other for years, and thus it was natural for us to converse freely. Just before dinner Voltaire came to me, as if he wished to enter into conversation he commenced talking about yorkshire its customs legends and superstitions and then with a tact and shrewdness which i could not resist he drew me into a talk about myself i felt that he was sifting me felt that he was trying to read my very soul and yet i could not break myself from him one thing was in my favour i knew his feelings towards me felt sure that he hated me and thus i kept on my guard Time after time, by some subtle question, he sought to lead me to speak about the woman dear to my heart, but in that he did not succeed. He fascinated me, and in a degree mastered me, but did not succeed in all his desires. I knew he was weighing me, testing me, and seeking to estimate my powers, but being on my guard, his success was limited. When our conversation ceased, I felt sure of one thing— it was to be a fight to the death between me and this man, if I would obtain the woman I loved. Perhaps some may think this conclusion to be built on a very insufficient foundation. Nevertheless, I felt sure that such was the case. When I was quite a lad, I remember an old Scotchwoman visited our house. It was little, I can recall, to memory now concerning her, but I know that when she first set her eye upon me she said, "'Eh, Mrs. Blake?' But yon Byrne has the gift or second sight. My mother laughed at the idea, whereupon the old woman began to correct herself. I'll no say he has the gift to second sight properly, she said, but he'll feel in a minute what it'll take soom folk years to find out. Eh, lad? Turning to me, if you come across someone as you dunna like, I'll little to do wi em as you can. I am inclined to think there is truth in this judgment of the old Scotch lady. I have found her words true in many cases, and I was sure in the case of Voltaire my feelings told me what actually existed. There was one thing in my favour. Evidently, he did not think I guessed his wishes. Nevertheless, I felt sure that if I was to obtain the mastery over such a man it would be little short of a miracle. Dinner passed over without anything worthy of note, but as soon as it was over we hurried to the drawing-room. Even those who loved their after-dinner wine joined the ladies, as if in expectation of something wonderful. The truth was, it had gone around that Mr. Voltaire was going to tell us a story concerning the mystic rites that are practised in eastern lands, and the subject was an attractive one. The ladies especially, evidently fascinated by the witchery of this man's presence, anxiously waited for him to commence. "'What do you wish me to tell you about?' he said, in answer to repeated requests for him to begin, from several young ladies. "'Oh, tell us a story of second sight, and spiritualism, and all that you know,' replied a young lady with a doll's face and a simpering manner. "'You promised you would,' said another. "'True, I promised, but not to-day. This Christmas-day is like Sunday to you English folk, and I do not wish to mar its sacredness.' Oh, the Sunday part of it is all ended at twelve o'clock, cried the young lady who had spoken first. As soon as church is over, we commence our fun. Do, Mr. Voltaire. We shall be disappointed if you don't. I cannot resist the ladies, he said with a smile. But you must not be frightened at my story, for remember what I tell you is true. I do not weave this out of my own brain like your average English novelist has to do. I fancied this was directed at me. Not that I deserved the appellation. I had written only one novel, and that was a very poor one. Still, I fancied I saw his light, glittering eyes turned in my direction. I must make a sort of apology, too, he went on. Many of you do not believe in what will be the very marrow of my story. Come, Voltaire, never mind apologies, said Tom Temple. We are all anxious to hear it. I mentioned last night, said Voltaire, that I had spent some time in Egypt, up by the Nile. The story I have to tell relates to that part of the world. I had sailed up the Nile by one of the ordinary river steamers to a place called Abu Simbel, close to the second cataract. Here the ordinary tourist stops, and stops too at the beginning of what really interests an imaginative mind. There are, however, some fine ruins here which well repay one for a visit. Ah, me! one wishes he had lived three or four thousand years ago when he stands among those ancient piles there was some wisdom then some knowledge of the deep things of life however i did not stay here i went with my friend kafar away further into the heart of nubia i cannot speak highly of the rank and file of the people there they are mostly degraded and uncultured lacking here he bowed to the ladies that delightful polish which characterizes those who live in the west still i found some relics of the wisdom of the ancients one of the sheikhs of a village that lay buried among palm trees was deeply versed in the things i longed to know and with him i took up my abode abu al Fadre was an old man and not one whom the ladies would love that is for his face for it was yellow and wrinkled his eyes too were almost buried in their cavernous sockets and shaded by bushy white eyebrows those who love the higher powers however and can respect the divine power of knowledge would have knelt at abu's feet this wonderful man had a daughter born to him in his old age born too with the same love for truth the same thirst for a knowledge of things unseen to the ordinary eye so much was this so That she was called Ilfra the Understanding One. As the years went on she outstripped her father, and obtained a knowledge of that for which her father had unsuccessfully studied all his life. When Kafar and I entered this village, she was nearly twenty years of age, and was fair to look upon. It was rarely she spoke to me, however, for she dwelt with the unseen, and talked with the buried dead. Abu, on the other hand, was kind to me, and taught me much and together we tried to find out what for years he had been vainly searching what that secret was i will not tell only those who live in the atmosphere of mystery can think rightly about what lies in the mind and heart of the true magician as i before hinted ilfra the understanding one had found out the secret her soul had outsoared that of her father and of all the sages for many miles around And she would have revealed her knowledge both to her father and to me but for one thing seven is a perfect number and all the easterns take it into consideration and it is a law that no one shall reveal a secret that they may have found until three times seven years pass over their heads thus it was while we eagerly sought for the mysterious power i have mentioned we were buoyed up by the hope that though we might not be successful Ilfra would reveal to us what we desired to know. And thus the time passed on, until we reached Ilfra's twenty-first birthday, with the exception of seven days. Both Abu and I were glad at heart, for although the secret to me would be as nothing compared to what it would be to him, yet I could put it to some use, while to him it would dispel distance, time, and physical life. Through it the secrets of astronomer and astrologer would be known while the pages of the past would lie before him like an open book. Judge his anguish then, and my disappointment, when, seven days before her twenty-first birthday, she was bitten by a Serestes, and her body died. Had she been near her home, her knowledge would have defied the powers of this most deadly serpent's bite, for she knew antidotes for every poison. As it was, however, the same kind of serpent that had laid the beautiful cleopatra low likewise set at liberty the soul of ilfra do not think abu grieved because of her death death was not death to him his eyes pierced that dark barrier he suffered because the glorious knowledge he longed for was rudely snatched from him Thou man of the west who bearest the name of a jewish king he said to me this is a heavy blow not too heavy for you abu i said The soul has flown, but when the three times seven years is complete, you can call her back and learn her wisdom. I can call her back, but the secret— Ah, I know it not, he said. By this time there was a deadly silence in the room. Every ear was strained, so that not one sound of Voltaire's voice might be missed. As for him, he sat with his eyes fixed, as if he saw beyond the present time and place, while his face was like a piece of marble— Kafar, I noticed, fixed his eyes upon his friend, and in his stony stare he seemed possessed of an evil spirit. None of the English guests spoke when Voltaire stopped, a second in his narration. All seemed afraid to utter a sound except Kafar. "'Go on, Herod,' he said. "'I am up in Egypt again.' "'It was little we ate,' said Voltaire, during the next seven days. We were too anxious to know whether the secrets of the dead were to be revealed, neither could we speak much, for the tongue is generally silent when the soul is wrapped in mystery. And right glad were we when the day dawned on which the veil should be made thicker, or altogether drawn aside. We did not seek to know the mystery after which we were panting, until the midnight of Ilfra's birthday. Then when the earth in its revolution spelt out that hour, we entered the room of the maiden, Whose soul had departed, the Egyptians have lost much of the knowledge of the ancients, especially in the art of embalming. Often the sons of Egypt moan over that departed wisdom. Still, the art is not altogether gone. The body of Ilfra lay embalmed before us as we entered. She had been beautiful in life, but was more beautiful in death, and it was with reverence for that beauty that I stood beside her. Fetch Helfa, said Abu to a servant, and then begone. Helfa was Abu's son. Here in England you would cruelly designate him as something between a madman and an idiot. But the Easterns looked not thus upon those who possessed not their ordinary faculties. Through Helfa, Abu had seen many wonderful things, and now he was going to use him again. Awadja Herod, he said to me, I am first going to use one of our old means of getting knowledge. It has failed me in the past." but it will be perchance more potent in the presence of Ilfra the Understanding One. With that he took some ink, and poured it in Helfa's hand. This ink was the most precious in his possession, and obtained by means not lawful to relate. When it was in his son's hands he looked at me straight in the eyes, until, while I was in possession of all my senses, I seemed to live a charmed life. My imagination soared. My heart felt a wondrous joy. "'Look,' said Abu. "'Look in Helfa's hand.' I looked intently. "'What see you, son Herod?' "'I see a paradise,' I replied. "'But I cannot describe it. "'The beauties are incomparable. "'Ilfra is there. "'She mingles with those who are most obeyed. "'See you anything by which the mystery can be learned. "'I can see nothing.' I heard a sigh. I had returned to my normal condition again, and had told nothing. "'I expected this,' he said.' But I will try Helfa. The experiment with Helpha, however, was just as fruitless. Then he turned to me. Son Herod, he said, prepare to see the greatest deed ever done by man. All the knowledge and power of my life are to be concentrated in one act. With that he looked at Helpha, who staggered to a low cushion. Spirit of Helpha, leave the body, he said. Instantly the eyes of Helpha began to close, his limbs grew stiff, and in a few seconds he lay lifeless by us. I have a mission for you, spirit of Helfer. Flee to the home of spirits, and bring back the soul of thy sister, that she may tell me what we wish to know. When the command was given, I felt that a something, an entity, was gone from us. Abu and I were alone with the two bodies. ''What expect you, Abu?'' I said anxiously. ''If the labor of a lifetime has not been a failure,'' he said, ''these two bodies will soon possess their spirits.'' Again Voltaire stopped in his recital and looked around the room. He saw that every eye was fixed upon him, while the faces of some of the young ladies were blanched with terror. Evidently they were deeply moved, even some of the young men shuddered, not so much because of the story that was told, as the strange power of the man that told it. As he saw these marks of interest, a smile crept over his face. He evidently felt that he was the strongest influence in the room, that all had to yield to him as their superior. I confess, he went on, that my heart began to beat quickly at these words fancy if you can the scene an egyptian village not far removed from some of the great temples of the dead past above our heads waved tall palm trees around was a strange land and a wild lawless people the hour was midnight and our business was with the dead we had not waited above three minutes when i knew that the room was peopled by whom i knew not except that they came from that land from whose born your greatest poet says no traveler returns i looked at abu his face was as the face of the dead except for his eyes they burned like two coals of fire he uttered some strange words the meaning of which was unknown to me and then i knew some mighty forces were being exerted in that old sheik's hut my brain began to whirl while a terrible power gripped me but still i looked and still I remembered. Spirit of Ilfra, said Abu, are you here? No voice spoke that I could hear, and yet I realized that Abu had received his answer. Enter thy body then, spirit of my daughter, and tell me if thou darest the secret I have desired so long. I looked at the embalmed body. I saw the eyelids quiver, the mouth twitch, and then the body moved. Speak to me, my daughter, and tell me all," said Abu. I only heard one sound. My overtaxed nerves could bear no more. The living dead was too terrible for me, and I fell senseless to the ground. When I awoke to consciousness, I found only Abu and Helfa there. The body of Ilfra had been removed, where I know not, for I never saw it again. But Helfa was like unto that which he had been before. THE SECRET IS MINE, SON HEROD, SAID ABU. BUT IT IS NOT FOR YOU TO LEARN YET. BE PATIENT. WHEN YOUR SPIRIT IS PREPARED, THE KNOWLEDGE WILL COME. VOLTAIRE STOPPED ABRUPTLY. ONE OF THE YOUNG LADIES GAVE A SLIGHT SCREAM, AND THEN HE APOLOGIZED FOR HAVING NO MORE TO TELL. BUT HAS THE KNOWLEDGE COME SINCE? ASKED A VOICE. I DID NOT KNOW WHO SPOKE, BUT IT SOUNDED LIKE GERTRUDE FOREST'S VOICE. I TURNED TOWARDS HER and saw her looking admiringly at this man whom i could not help fearing his answer was a beaming smile and a few words saying that knowledge should never be boasted of that moment my jealousy which had been allayed now surged furiously in me and i determined that this very night i would match the strength of my mind with the strength of his end of chapter four